Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Foundations Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This weekly podcast is designed to accompany your discipleship group and help you build a strong foundation in the Christian faith. We want to equip you so you can be unleashed to obey Jesus' command to make disciples. We want to make Jesus' final words our first work. Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Foundations podcast. And we've been slowly working our way through the Old Testament. And remember the structure that we've been using to help us go through the Old Testament. Remember 17.5.17. The first 17 books of the Old Testament give us its storyline. Then the next five books are the poetical books, and those, in some sense, give us man's response to that story. They help us understand the story in a little bit different way. And then we have the 17 prophetical books, which really give us sort of God's commentary on the story from the first 17 books. Now, last week we finished up the historical books. Okay, we went through the first 17 historical books and we finished up the main storyline of the Old Testament. Now, this week I want us to get into the five poetical books. Okay, so that's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, also known as Song of Songs. But let's talk about the book of Psalms first. Now, what is a psalm? A psalm is simply a religious song. Okay, so the psalms are, in essence, like Israel's hymnal. These were meant to be sung, and they were sung by the Israelites. Now, remember King David from our story. We've talked about him in in the previous weeks. Remember that there was chaos during the time of the judges. They were ruled loosely by these military leaders, but there were these downward cycles of of sin going on, and Israel started to cry out for a king. Now, Saul became the first king of Israel, but Saul was not a very good king. Okay, so it was David, the second king of Israel, who helped restore Israel. He helped get them back on track, and he restored right worship of God. And, And God actually calls David a man after his own heart. And David was also a musician. So he actually composed 73 of the 150 Psalms that we have in scripture. And that's why many people associate the Psalms with David. Now, obviously, because of what we just talked about, many of the Psalms can be dated to David's time, but the Psalms were actually written and collected over a very long period of time, dating all the way back to Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, and extending all the way until after the exile. So the Psalms really record the the songs and the prayers of Israel throughout much of its history. And the Psalms are grouped into five books, probably as a reference back to the Pentateuch. Remember, we talked about the Pentateuch a couple weeks ago. It means five books, and it refers to the first five books of the Bible from Genesis through Deuteronomy. And remember, we said those books are foundational to the rest of Scripture. So the the Psalms are probably grouped into five books as a reference back to the Pentateuch. And the Psalms contain a variety of material and different moods, but we can really put them into two broad and general categories, praise Psalms and 
lament psalms, praise and lament. Now, praise psalms generally express worship and thanksgiving to God, sometimes just simply for who he is, and other times for something specific that he's done. So praise psalms can sometimes act somewhat like a a modern testimony where the psalmist will describe how God delivered him from some sort of circumstance, and then he will praise God. So in a praise psalm, things are generally going pretty well. Things are, are fairly positive. But then in a lament psalm, it's sort of the opposite. The lament psalms are really the, the blues of Israel's hymnal. Okay, These are, are brutally honest. They express pain and, and sorrow and struggles. Remember that Israel went through a, a lot of different suffering throughout their history. And these lament psalms reflect that. In these psalms, you'll see that the psalmist will ask questions like, Where's God? Why doesn't he deliver me? How long will he be angry with us? Understand that even the most faithful of God's people, even someone like David, whom God called a man after his own heart, even the most faithful people struggle with these types of questions. Part of being in a relationship with God, a real relationship, is being honest and expressing our hurts and our our sorrows, our pain and our doubts and our confusion. That's part of any relationship. We have to have honesty and transparency. So these lament psalms don't have fake, superficial, religious language. These psalms are, are raw and honest. And usually as the, the psalmist cries out in one of these lament psalms, you'll see that he slowly comes to grip with the fact that God is still with him, God is still in control, and he will end the psalm with some sort of statement of, of trust. Now, as we look at these psalms together, the praise psalms and, and the lament psalms, we see that praise psalms help us learn how to express our, our praise and our adoration to God. And lament psalms help us learn how to cry out to God during hard times, how to be honest with God. So if we look at them together, if we look at the Psalms as a whole, they teach us how to pray. So a great practice to get in the habit of of doing and something that Christians have done throughout much of history is to pray through a Psalm a day. Now, I know you already have your D group reading plan and keep doing that. Don't change anything there. But one thing you might want to consider doing it is getting into the habit of of reading a psalm a day. Don't look at it as adding something to your schedule. Look at it as repurposing the time that you already have. Maybe instead of looking at your phone during your lunch break, you can pray through a psalm. Or maybe before you go to bed, instead of being on your phone or watching TV, you can pray through a psalm. And as you start to pray through these psalms, you'll, you'll find that it, it shapes the way that you pray. It changes the language that you use and it helps you be more God-centered in your prayers. Now, a couple other notes on the book of Psalms before we move on here. Remember that Israel's pagan neighbors, so all these nations surrounding Israel, they had gods, little g gods that they worshipped, and they performed sacrifices and, and rituals and all these things. But for these other nations, there was really little or no 
relationship between the gods and the people. But the God of Israel was different. Our God is different. We see this in the Psalms. This is the God who said, I will be your God. You will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. The Psalms show us that God wants to have a real relationship with us. That's what it's all about. That's what it's always been about. Even in the Old Testament, God wants to have a real intimate relationship with us, with you. So keep that in mind as you read the Psalms. That's what it's all about. Now, another quick note. Remember that the story of the first 17 historical books of the Bible give us the backdrop for the book of Psalms. So we see Psalms praising God for rescuing Israel from Egypt. Other Psalms praise God for his law and for the promised land and for the establishment of Israel's kingdom. But then, of course, other Psalms discuss disobedience and judgment. So, for example, Psalm 51, David confesses his sin with Bathsheba and he ultimately repents. And Israel as a whole also realizes the consequences of their sin and they pray for forgiveness and for restoration. Also understand that some of the Psalms contain references to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. We see that especially in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And also Psalm 22, Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, he cries out the first line, the first verse of Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Understand that in ancient Judaism, it was common to refer to an entire psalm by referencing just the first line. It was kind of a quick way of of referencing the entire psalm. So knowing that, I want to challenge you, go back and read Psalm 22, but read it from the perspective of Jesus, knowing that Jesus referenced that psalm on the cross. Now, with that being said, let's move on from Psalms and let's move on to the wisdom books. That would be Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Let's start with with Proverbs. Most of the Proverbs were composed and assembled by King Solomon. We see that in verse 1. Remember, God gave Solomon the gift of wisdom. That's in 1 Kings chapter 3, if you want to go back and read that story. So it makes sense that Solomon would write a book about wisdom. Now, the key principle, the core principle of the book, we see it in chapter 1, verse 7 of Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, what does that mean? The fear of the Lord. Understand that doesn't mean a cowering fear of God's punishment. It's talking about a reverence and a humility before God. It's talking about a a willingness to submit to his rule. And this fear of the Lord, this reverence, this humility is the really the driving force behind all the practical advice in the book. A lot of times we miss that. We think that Proverbs is all practical, and, and it is, but this fear of the Lord is the, the driving force behind all of it. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now, speaking of the practical, another key to understand is, is that Proverbs gives us general principles, not promises. It tells us sort of how life normally works. For example, if you work hard, you will prosper. Or if you're lazy, you won't prosper. 
We know that's not always true, but it's a general guideline that people who are honest and work hard will do well. So it's a very practical book. It talks about work. It talks about marriage and raising kids and friends and and money, finances and patience and gossip and all sorts of very practical topics. And it uses several different types of people to make its points, to illustrate its points. First, you have the wise person, and that's somebody who submits to God's rule and seeks to live all of life in light of the fear of the Lord. Then you have the fool, who is somebody who doesn't submit to God's rule and who is somebody who's wise in their own eyes. Then you have the simple person, and this is somebody who really isn't committed either way to wisdom or foolishness. There's somebody who's easily led astray and they're not committed to growing in the discipline of wisdom. Okay, so you'll see the wise, the fool, and the simple throughout the, the book of Proverbs. And there are a few major sections in the book. The first unit we see from Proverbs 1.8 through 9.18. This records a father's wisdom to his son. The second unit is from chapter 10, verse 1 through 29.27. And this records a collection of, of short one-verse statements of wisdom. These are what we think of when we think of typical Proverbs. Then chapter 30 is attributed to an unknown wise man by the name of Agur. And then chapter 31 is attributed to a king, Lemuel. It says it was taught to him by his mother, and it contains a mother's advice to her son. So the book opens with a father's advice to his son and closes with a mother's advice to her son, followed by a description of a wise and noble wife. So that's the book of Proverbs. Keep in mind Remember, the fear of the Lord is the, the driving force, the driving factor of the book. And remember, it gives us general principles. These aren't promises. People get tripped up on that sometimes. These are just general guidelines, general advice. Now, in the book of Proverbs, everything for the most part makes sense. Good, hardworking, honest people do well, while cheaters and lazy people don't. But we certainly know that's not always the case in life, right? And that brings us to the book of Job. The book of Job probably takes place during the time of the the patriarchs. So think of people like Abraham. And Job really talks about the suffering of the righteous. The book opens with Job, who's a, a faithful and a righteous man, and he has wealth, he has a large family, and he has good health. But God allows Satan to test Job And Job loses everything. He loses his property, his children, and his health takes a turn for the worse. And most of this story is told through the dialogue of Job and his friends. Now, Job's friends make the mistake of thinking that the same kind of principles that we see in the book of Proverbs are promises. They assume that Job must have committed some great sin. They they assume that all of this... All of these bad things that are happening to Job must be the result of some sort of sin in Job's life. But that's not the case. And throughout all of this, Job begins to question God. He starts to question God's justice and wisdom. And he tells God to answer him. And God does answer, but he doesn't answer in the way that Job expects. He doesn't give an answer as to why Job is suffering. He simply reminds Job who he is. 
he actually asks Job a series of questions. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And he goes on and asks a whole series of questions. God is telling Job to trust him no matter his circumstances. He reminds Job that he is the the almighty, all-powerful creator. And the book ends with Job repenting and God actually restores Job's life. He receives twice the wealth that he had before and he has many more children. But there's a couple different things we can learn from the book of Job. One, we see that God is sovereign and he's in control over all of our circumstances, no matter what's going on. Also understand that God is always just in what he does, but he doesn't always explain his justice to his people. And finally, God expects his people to trust his character and his sovereignty, even when our circumstances are difficult. We don't have all the answers. We're never going to have all the answers. But God wants us to trust him, not based on our circumstances, but based on who he is. Now, real quick, the last couple of wisdom books. First, we have Ecclesiastes. This was also written by Solomon. And it records Solomon's search for meaning in life. Remember that Solomon had all the wealth he could ever want. He had all the power and influence he could ever want. But this book, Ecclesiastes, records his search for ultimate meaning. And he concludes in the end that apart from a relationship with God, apart from living under his rule, all life is ultimately meaningless. He concludes with the line, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We see the same principle really as in Proverbs. Fear the Lord. Revere him, stand in awe of him, and submit to him with humility. Because only in doing this do we find true meaning in life. Then we have our last wisdom book here, the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs. And this was written by Solomon as well. Now, it was written by Solomon, but it wasn't necessarily autobiographical. Because remember, Solomon had many wives. He had hundreds of wives. And this book celebrates the physical intimacy enjoyed within the bounds of marriage, within the confines of marriage. Marriage is a very foundational part of life, so it's not surprising to see the wisdom books address it. Now, there are three main characters in the book. The first is the woman, also known as Beloved. Then you have the man, who's called Lover. Then you have the woman's companions, who are called the Daughters of Jerusalem. These are the woman's friends. And the book consists of short songs that the man and the woman sing to each other. The friends will sometimes sing as well. There are three main sections to the book. You have the courtship in the first few chapters, then the wedding, and then finally the honeymoon. Now really what this book is doing is it gives us a picture of of how good and how wonderful physical intimacy can be when it's done on God's terms and when it's done under his rule. Now, a quick recap here. Remember, the Psalms show us how to praise God and how to cry out to him, how to be honest with him, and really how to pray in general. They show us that God wants to have a real relationship with us. He wants to have deep intimacy with us. Then we have the the wisdom books, which show us what it looks like to live under God's rule. Proverbs shows us how to live wisely under God's rule as we fear the Lord, as we revere him and submit humbly to him. It shows us what our lives should look like practically. Job tells us that 
Sometimes the righteous suffer, but we can trust God simply because of who he is. Then we have Ecclesiastes, which tells us that life without a relationship with God is meaningless. If we don't live under God's rule, our lives are ultimately meaningless. Then we have the Song of Solomon, which shows us that physical intimacy is a wonderful gift. It's something to be celebrated when it's done under God's rule and on his terms. And together, these books give us man's response to the story in the first 17 books, and they teach us what a life of wisdom looks like, what it looks like to live under God's rule. Now, again, remember why we're doing this. We're not just giving you head knowledge for the sake of head knowledge. That's not what this is about. We want to help you, first of all, to have a deeper relationship with Christ. We want to equip you to know God more. And we want you to be equipped to make other disciples, to make disciples who make disciples so that you can make Jesus' final words your first work. 